You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who call you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that they, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits, visits us. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as a supreme authority or to the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but not do not use freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Let me pray for us, and uh, we'll, get, we'll get into this. Let's pray. Father, you are passionate, passionate about showing men and women who you really are. Sin has warped our view of you. We have such dark suspicions, dark intuitions about what you're really like. We've believed propaganda. We've believed gossip. And it is your delight to patiently show us who you really are. You do it through your word. You do it through your people. But most of all, you have done it through Jesus, God in the flesh. So tonight, as Lauren prayed earlier, show us Jesus. He's the one my friends need to see. He's the one we need to be talking about. And so that's our ask of you. I pray that you'll do this because you love us, because you're good, because you love Jesus, and you love talking about him. Amen. So here's an idea I want you to hopefully leave the room with tonight. I'd love for this idea to survive the drive home and still be in your head and your heart tomorrow, maybe next week, if I could really hope for that. Here it is. Having a specific role and responsibility makes a world of difference to how you operate in a group. Having a specific role and responsibility changes everything for how you operate in a group. It changes your sense of belonging, your sense of purpose, how meaningful you find your sacrifice of time. It changes how much you get out of a group, how much you want to give back to a group. I learned this in a really powerful way when I kind of shifted over the course of three months from a random face in the crowd at RUF just as a student to an intern here. So I went from kind of like random semi-regular attender during my grad school years is when I had just become a Christian. I just heard about RUF right after I graduated started coming with some fraternity brothers of mine. And when I was free, I would come, and I was kind of involved-ish, went on a retreat, was getting to know some people, would hang out at people's houses, came to large group most weeks. That was about it. But I felt like an anonymous face in the crowd. I certainly didn't have any specific roles or responsibilities. 
And then as I got to know the campus minister more and started to feel a little bit confused about my place in the world, my calling, started to feel more called to ministry, ended up having a series of conversations with the campus minister at the time and wind up signing up for the RUF internship. Never, never in a million years pictured myself as that. And they placed me here. So I went like on May 31st, random face in the crowd to on June 1st, the RUF intern at UGA. Very clear role, very clear responsibilities. When I didn't have a role in responsibilities, um, this might sound familiar to some of you, I kind of came in fashionably late because I didn't want to mingle because I didn't know many people. And I sat there and I tried to kind of learn some of the music. I wasn't very familiar with it, kind of learned it over time. And then I would look for a few faces after the last song and then I would bolt out that side door. When I was an intern, and I had a very specific role with very specific responsibilities to find the new faces, to throw out the welcome mat, to love them, to pursue them, to remember their name, to make a way for them in this community. Last song would end, and I found myself just kind of going and working the room. At first, felt a little awkward. At first, like, I think naturally I'm a pretty shy person. I learned to work a room. I learned to look for the newcomers because of that role. On campus, during my grad school years, it never really occurred to me to be inviting my friends to church or to large group. It didn't really cross my mind. Maybe sometimes I would tell someone about it, but when I was an intern, there wasn't a second that I was on that campus when I didn't have the mentality of how can I connect these people I'm meeting to other people I know. How can I help this? How can I learn this person? How can I figure out how I can help them see who God really is and shed some of the gossip or the, or the dark intuitions they have about him? That was always my mindset. Why? Because that was my role. It's my responsibility. See how much it clarifies what you're supposed to be doing, what your mission is, who you are, how you're supposed to treat people. Those of you who have been uh, camp counselors, I bet the way that you related to other people was very different during those summer months when you were at camp and you had the role as a counselor. You were probably more attentive to people, more attentive to their needs, to the questions that they had, more of a servant heart maybe. If you're a Terry ambassador, ag school ambassador, whatever, you're more attentive to new people in the halls, might be there for a campus visit or something. You carry yourself differently because you have a role. Community group leaders, I bet the night of your community group, you interact with people differently, more intentionally, because of the role that you have versus if you didn't. This is also the reason we all hate the mission trip hangover. Because on a mission trip, somebody structures your role and your responsibilities for you. They're like, Y'all are the people who are supposed to tear this roof off and build a new one this week. And you wake up with such purpose and clarity of mission. And then you get back here and you just kind of like, you have that hangover, that malaise of like, what am I supposed to do? Just back to the ordinary. Roles clarify responsibility. They signal to you who you are and therefore what you're supposed to do, how you're supposed to act. 
Having a role, having a title makes it easier, doesn't it? Doesn't it make it easier? Versus when you're just an anonymous face in the crowd. Well, here's the thing. Here's that big takeaway from tonight that I hope stays with you. If you are in Jesus, if you are a Christian, God has given you and clarified for you a very specific role in every little pocket of people that you have access to. Whether it's RUF or your church or your lab or your workplace, he has given you a very specific role there. You are not an anonymous face in the crowd. If it's your first time at large group tonight, ever, and you're a Christian, you have a specific role in this room tonight. If you forget that role, you'll be prone to do what I used to do. If you remember that role, I'm a priest, I'm a friend, I'm a neighbor, I'm a lover. I bet you will find yourself praying for the courage to walk up to someone you don't know. And I bet over time you'll find yourself, you'll find, find your feet walking you over to those people. I bet you'll find yourself looking for opportunities um, to live out this divine calling, this divine role. Uh, just like I did. I was like, I'm the intern. I'm the guy who goes and makes people feel at home. And I want you to start thinking, and Peter wants you to start thinking like, I'm a priest. Of course you're the person. Of course you're the one in the room tonight who's supposed to lighten the load of one or two other people in the room tonight. Of course you're the one who's supposed to help your confused roommate how to connect the dots. Of course that's your role. You're a priest. Peter uses language in here like, I urge you. My friends, my beloved, I urge you. And he's talking to us about who we once were and who we are now. Peter keeps coming back to, do you know your role? Did you get the memo? Do you know your role? Do you know your responsibilities? Or do you still feel like an anonymous face in the crowd, a random person? If you do, you experience what every Christian probably experiences at one time or another. You'll start asking questions like, I'm a Christian, so what? For what? Is this whole Christianity thing just about changing my status from under God's anger because of my sin to under God's grace and mercy because of Jesus? Is that all that happened? Well, if you've been around the past few weeks, if you've ever read this letter, you know that no, what God has fundamentally done, he has saved you for a very specific purpose. First, to be his. To be his, to love him. But also he, he, he stretches you inside out and he says to you very early on after adopting you as his son or his daughter and bringing you into his family and saying, you're mine, you're holy because I've made you holy. Very quickly he says, and I'm going to make your life's work the same life's work of my son who you are united to now. His mission is going to become your mission. And his mission was fundamentally about others was fundamentally about sacrifice, was fundamentally about bearing a cross for the sake of others. So this is the destiny, the calling, the mission, the role, the responsibility of anybody who is alive in Jesus. Hear me, you have a role. 
Morale can increase because now you know your place. Yeah, you got to flesh out the details. I had to flesh out the details of what does it even mean to be an intern? What does it mean to, you know, be the doorway into this community for people who don't really know anybody? I had to figure out the details of that. But I had a role and I had a responsibility. I wasn't a random face anymore. Well, let's get to the passage. And I want to be brief here because we've been chipping away at this stuff for a month and a half now. And we'll continue to in the weeks ahead. So I'm not going to say it all tonight, but as I look down at the passage, and you say, okay, well, Ben, what is a priest again? Well, this week's definition of it, as Peter continues to, like a 3D printer, layer on new definitions, new layers of what it means to be a priest, he would add this. First, you are a part of a team. Because I've actually been using incorrect language. God does not say you're a priest. He says y'all are a royal priesthood. So here's where we check our Western culture, our individualism, where we want to turn every y'all in the Bible into a me. Y'all are a team. Specially recruited. I've, I've said the special teams, the special forces of humanity. A unique, particular people plucked out of humanity to go back out in service to the world. You are a member of a team. You are a part of a missionary family, a missionary community. This is not an individual sport. This is a team sport. When you hear us talking about being a priest in your pockets of people, that lab, that job, that fraternity or sorority, by definition, you're part of a small team. Thus, Peter's continual emphasis on foreigners, exiles, pilgrims, people who don't fit in. And if you're a priest in any definition of that word, that means you're not like everybody else. Whatever pockets of people that Jesus has given you access to strategically, and it always is strategic, um, there are a lot of people there, but not many priests. Not many people in that pocket who have met the living God and know too much now. There's no going back. I know he's real. My life is evidence of it. I know he's merciful. I've seen too much. He's born with too much in me. He's washed too much away. He's been too patient with me to believe anything else. There's a lot of people in those pockets, but there aren't many priests. So you're a part of a minority community. You look different, and Peter says that will invite both positive intrigue and negative ridicule. You stand out, in other words, in potentially redemptive ways, not because you're redeeming anybody, but because God will use your difference, your holiness, your distinctiveness to show himself to others, but also you'll stand out in a bad way. You'll invite both scorn and curiosity. But you're a part of a very small team, a minority missionary community. We talked two weeks ago about your saints. When you look in the mirror, it's been two weeks since we talked about that. When you look in the mirror in the morning, do you see a saint of the living God? One who has received holiness, not one trying to achieve holiness. Do you respect yourself the way the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit respect you? Does the hair on the back of your head stand up when you think about your sacred calling during your college years? 
If not, here's a, here's a uh, some mornings yes for me, some mornings absolutely not. I had my mind on other stuff. Here's another invitation to be careful what you say about yourself when you look in that mirror because God has called you a saint, his special treasured possession. Peter said it too. We are not our own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who has purchased you, who has fully paid for all of our sins with his precious blood. You are not your own. You've been bought by another, made by another, bought back by another. Peter goes on in verse 9. He's just listing all these synonymous definitions of what a priest is. It's a grab bag. Take whatever you want. Chosen people, holy nation, royal priesthood, God's special possession, his treasure. Then he says, we are those who once were lost but now are found. And those who feel like once we were found and now we're lost again. And now we're limping again, and now we're weak again, and now we're confused again. But we are fundamentally people who once were not a people. Nobody has a pedigree or a genealogy of being alive in Jesus. All of us have a history, have baggage, have a past, have a memory of life apart from God. And therefore, we're humble saints not harsh saints, not religious people in the worst sense of the word of like, who wants to be around those prudes, but approachable, accessible, gentle, understanding. Even your non-believing friends come to you with stuff that in the back of their minds, they might think normal Christians would judge me for this, but I can tell you because you're so humble and approachable and gentle because you are one who once was not near to God, once was not his, once was not alive. And you know if God can save one like you, he can save anybody. This is a community filled with wounded healers. It's like a rehab facility and God only hires former addicts because they're the only ones who understand that it's his mercy and his mercy alone that can change, that can, that can bring you out of what God brought you out of. Humble healers, wounded healers, men and women who still limp on this journey towards real life practical holiness. And then he says, we have been chosen that we might declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Which means a lot of things, but at a minimum means Christians are not gathered near to God to be Simply consumers. We are gathered near to God to soak up his presence and to be scattered back out into the pockets of people that he has strategically given you access to that you might be a billboard for his kindness, goodness, patience, grace, mercy, reality. Elliot Clark said this, and I hope you remember this too. It's the only quote I'll be pulling up tonight, and I hope I can remember to repeat it a few times, but he said, holiness is an embodied argument in support of the gospel's reality. Holiness is an embodied argument in support of the gospel's reality. 
And this is also why hypocrisy is such a danger. In verse 11, Peter says, Dear friends, I urge you as resident aliens, as pilgrims, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. And you say, well, what are the sinful desires? And you might project into that whatever struggles you're struggling with right now, which I guess would be allowable, but if you want to know what he specifically has in his mind, look back at verse 1 of chapter 2. Hypocrisy, malice, slander, deceit. If holiness is a real-life embodied argument that speaks to the reality of the gospel, unholiness, it would hold, would be an embodied argument to the impotence of the gospel's reality. Everyone in the room knows this because everyone in the room doesn't want to be around hypocrites. Even if you're a Christian, even if you consider your, like, I struggle with that too. A hypocrite is someone who says one thing and their life does not support it. Their life does not bear witness or evidence or testimony. Their life is not an argument in favor of what they say they believe. Holiness is an embodied argument in support of the gospel's reality. Again, two weeks ago, holiness is received, not achieved. But practical holiness, real life, becoming more and more like Jesus as you learn to walk with him, be loved by him, be led by him, that is a trajectory. That's a trajectory of day to day. It's like God saying, go north. When he says, be holy, there's a practical element of that. He's saying, really, put off habits that don't fit who you are anymore. They're not you. Put on love. Put on humility. Put on service. That's a real trajectory. It's like God saying, walk north. In a life of holiness is anything in a northward direction. As you become more and more like Jesus in this life, what's unholiness? Walking east, walking west, walking south, walking any other direction. Being like, well, I kind of see something over there. I want to I I head off in that direction. It's always a dangerous thing when a human being's life becomes all about themselves. It's a really dangerous thing and hurtful thing when a Christian's life becomes all about herself or himself. Here's why. There are certain jobs, vocations, professions that are fundamentally others-oriented. The job wouldn't exist if other people who needed that job didn't exist. Um, I guess you could be a home builder and no one needed the home. You could just go build it. You could be a carpenter. You know. You could write music just for your own sake. But a doctor, doctor, that whole profession would not exist unless there were sick people who desperately needed you your education, your expertise, your skill. So a doctor has incredible power, is uniquely positioned to help heal other people. And when that doctor is aware of their role and their responsibilities and is living out of it with clarity, a lot of people's lives are changed for the better. When that doctor makes it all about themselves, and it's just about, I want to hit $500,000 by the time I'm 30. Or I want to be published. 
or I want to have my own practice. When you make that profession, which is fundamentally others-oriented, all about yourself, you do extra damage to the people who needed you. You start not picking up your phone calls at all because you're like, man, these people, they're just annoying me all the time. This is, I don't want to be in family medicine. They're just always getting sick on the weekends and late at night. Stay in my lane. I want to kind of get into this, you know, lower maintenance people. People suffer. You were supposed to be there for them. It was your role. So the power of somebody who has a unique role, who uses it and is aware of it, is increasingly turning that out towards other people in service. That's a powerful thing, and it's a dangerous thing when they make it all about themselves. Peter's argument about abstaining from the passions of the flesh, does Peter say, hey, you need to clean up, you know, you need to clean up your thought life and leave it there? No, hear me. Peter is rooting his call for you to abstain from the passions of the flesh. For, for his, he's rooting his call for your holiness in other people. This is a very non-Western thing to say. God is calling you to be holy for the sake of your neighbor. Look at the verse that comes right out of this. It's clearly th- flowing out of Peter's thought. I urge you, abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among those who don't know Jesus. And these pockets of people that he's put you in. He's saying they desperately need your holiness. If you won't do it for yourself, consider doing it for them as an act of sacrifice. I was talking to someone a while back. And we had been, um, you know, talking about this, trying to get plugged into a new church. And had really struggled to kind of just go to church. Wanted to. Knew that, I don't know, wanted to. Finally found a friend who was going to go to the same church. And they had a little pact. We're going to go together. And I said, oh, that's really cool. Um, so how was it? There was a particular church was trying to connect. And she was like, how was it? And he said, well, actually, to be honest with you, I've not gone. And he started to smile a little bit. And he's like, because uh, I've been pretty drunk most Saturday nights. And I just wasn't feeling it. I didn't wake up till noon on Sunday mornings. I said, hey, well. Unfortunately, I've been there. But what if you shift your paradigm and what if the reason that you stay sober on Saturday nights is because what if your friend also reached out to you to be his church buddy because he's struggling so hard to show up at church because he's scared because he doesn't know people. What if you don't get drunk for the sake of him? that you can be there for him. And another, a bigger smile broke out in his face, and he said, I never thought about that. Now, I'd love it if both motivations were the reasons why, you know, knowing his role, knowing who he is in Jesus, not needing that. But what about for another person? Would you pursue holiness for the sake of another person, for the sake of your roommates, for the sake of your mom, your dad, your friends? What an interesting Motivation. What, a, what an interesting place to anchor the call for us to live well in close proximity with those who don't know God. Here's a story of someone who did. This is an alumni. He used to sit in your chairs back in the day, back in Anna's day. You know, she was involved in RUF before I was, and he was in town visiting a few months ago. Sat on the back deck telling stories, and he is a, he's a lawyer, 
And I asked him, I was just curious, I was like, what kind of law are you into? And he said, um, kind of looks around, he goes, well, honestly, like personal injury law. And I laughed. And I was like, oh, like the billboard stuff? And he's like, yeah, I actually have my face on some billboards up in the city where he lives. And I was like, well, and I really respect this guy. I was like, well, tell me more. And he said, well, the way that I got into it is I was a, a part of a pretty lucrative firm up in the town where he's at. And he's like, we didn't do any of that stuff. None of that. If one call, that's all. If you fall and get hurt, call me. He's like, we didn't touch that stuff. It was beneath us. But he said, our firm would still get a lot of phone calls from people who thought that we did. They said, I'm helpless. I'm hopeless. I need somebody to represent me. Insurance company is not paying any of my bills. I'm getting the runaround from the car insurance company. I have no way to get to my job. And he'd say, I'm really sorry, but our firm doesn't do personal injury law. Here's a good firm that we've sent people to before. And he started telling them, but will you do me a favor? Will you call me back after your case is over and let me know how that firm, how that firm was? Because I want to know whether I should keep referring people to that or not. So months go by, and he starts getting more and more phone calls from distraught people they screwed me over. Yeah, it went to trial. Yes, they argued my case. And they got just enough to cover all of the lawyer's fees and to pay my medical bills. I can't work. I don't have a car. And now I'm slipping into poverty. So my friend heard that story one time, two times, three times. And he says, I have a law degree. I'm a part of a really powerful firm. Why aren't we doing personal injury law? This is a man who knew his role, and he knew it came with responsibilities to love and serve his neighbor for the sake of Jesus. So you know what he started doing? He started studying up on an area of law he had no expertise in. And a few years later, one of the biggest pieces of the pie chart of his firm's practice is personal injury law, representing poor people who have no one to represent them against billion-dollar insurance companies who say no to everything just to save money. Do you understand what I'm saying? What happens when you believe Jesus when he says, I saved you to make you a priest for the world? How do you think his clients how do you think their opinions of God or Christianity or Jesus or the gospel have changed when they heard that their high-dollar lawyer, who either did it pro bono or for barely anything, how do you think their opinion of Jesus changes when they hear him say, which he told me, this is my ministry? Yeah, I get paid when the insurance company has to pay millions of dollars. Yes, I get a cut of that, but this family's restored. What do you think they... What do you, you see how it changes? And they say, wait, wait a minute. You're doing this as an act of sacrifice and service? You're not just doing this to make a buck off of me? To build your practice? This is God's desire for his people living in the world, and it's your destiny. A supernaturally transformed life. A mercy-transformed life lived in close proximity to those who've never tasted mercy is compelling and attractive and intriguing. I've already told you, and you already know it because you experience it, 
Yes, you'll be ridiculed. Yes, you'll be laughed at. Yes, you'll be the different girl in the sorority in a bad way. Yes, people will tell stories about you. Yes, you'll be lame. No, you won't get calls out to all the parties that your friends might. But God also says that even those that are far from him, living in darkness, have never experienced his mercy, have a capacity to see something unique, different, and compelling in you. He's preserved their ability to see life in you and hope in you and joy in you. Not perfection, but somebody who's at peace with God. Somebody who more or less is figuring out who they are and where they fit into this world and what your piece of the action in God's plan is. That's compelling. I want to end tonight by telling you a few stories, and that'll be it. The world finds holiness attractive. Don't just take Peter's word for it. Do you remember last summer, the Little League World Series, when that pitcher threw the pitch and hit the batter in the head and knocked him down? And he's writhing in pain on the ground, and the trainers come out and check him out, and then he eventually gets up, everyone claps, and he runs to first base. You remember what he did next? He sees that the pitcher, I don't know, 12 or 13, I don't know how old they are in that series, but he sees this, this pitcher on the pitching mound is just coming undone. He is weeping, he's sobbing, because he hit this kid with a pitch in the head. This was global news. As he leaves first base and he walks to the pitcher's mound and he bear hugs this guy and he says, hey, it's okay. I'm okay. Did you hear about the woman in Buffalo during the blizzard on Christmas Day? Worst blizzard in 100 years. People are dying left and right. She hears screaming coming from the road outside of her house. It's something like negative 20, 40 mile an hour winds, huge snow drifts. Her and her boyfriend go out there to pick up a man, a 64-year-old mentally challenged man who was stuck at his job at the theater and thought he could walk home and got lost. And by the time they found him, his hands were frozen. And there's no, there's no 911 in the middle of a blizzard with four feet of snow on the roads. And so for the next few days, she cares for him. She encourages him. She loves him. And she pleads for help on Facebook. She advocates for him. You don't need me to tell you more stories. You know that the world is attracted to, compelled by, drawn in by holiness. Human beings who remember their role. Christians who know that I was saved to take up the life's work of my Redeemer. Which is kneeling down into the muck of other people's lives that they might be drawn to a God who is kneeling down in the muck of people's lives to make them new and to make them holy and to make them good again. That's your role. It's very clearly defined. Yes, you'll have to flesh out the details, but you're not an anonymous face in your life, your story, RUF, UGA. So don't act like it. You're the intern. You're the priest. Let's pray. Jesus, It is by your grace, by your mercy, by the power of your spirit that you have 
resurrected us and transformed us into fundamentally others-oriented people, neighbor-oriented people. Even as I talk tonight, I felt it, my friends probably felt it, how far we want to grow into that calling. It's like a huge pair of shoes, and we're going to spend the rest of our lives growing into it. Uh, But you were patient, you were kind, you were insistent, you were stubborn, and thank God you will get your way with us. You will make us just like you. Um, Help us abstain from the passions of the flesh even tonight and tomorrow this week. Help us to take up our calling to move towards our neighbors in love, to proclaim the excellencies of you who have called us out of darkness and into light. Amen.